If you'll ask any historian, they'll tell you that history is messy. People are messy. People are a contradiction of good and bad. So history is very messy. And so are our scriptures. The scriptures are written by inspired people who are messy themselves, and they had their own strengths and weaknesses, and those come out in the decisions that they make and in the revelations and inspirations in, that they get, and then what it, they write. The Book of Mormon is no exception to this. As we start taking a look at the war chapters and the decisions made during those wars, it's messy, and there are decisions on both sides which cause us to take a look at that. Join us today as we hop into uh, the beginning of the war chapters and look at the messiness of the decisions that needed to be made and the messiness in our own lives and the gospel that we live on a regular basis. Thanks for joining us. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Let's go ahead and get started with uh, today's class. Um, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, today, uh, in advance, we're going into kind of this fun section that... <coughs> A lot of times we don't know what to do with the Book of Mormon in the war chapters. How come they're there? How come they're so long? How come they're so detailed? Uh, since it was written by a general, uh, you know, and, and uh, he admired the general, you know, was he just kind of overly obsessed with the war thing? And how come all of this ends up, what does this have to do with us now? Um, and I want to I set that up a little bit uh, today. Uh, in, a, in a couple of ways and, and see what you think. Um, all right, first of all, I want to I remind us of a couple of things. Uh, I'm going to see if I can make this guy work. Yeah, I can. All right. Just a reminder that when we take a look at, at the, the church, first of all, we need to understand that, um, the, that we operate off of, oh, I'm going to do it this way, let's do this, we have the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay, and, and everything that is what the Savior taught, uh, the gospel of love, uh, and, and which he said, you know, when they asked, what are we supposed to be doing? And he says, love your neighbor as yourself uh, and love the Lord thy God. And on this hang what? All the lot, right? So, now, interestingly enough, though, uh, surrounding that gospel 
is this scaffolding of what we call what? The church. And the church is supposed to administer the ordinances. The church is supposed to be the functional part of it. And Neil Maxwell called it the scaffolding, meaning that it supports for a period of time. And then ultimately there'll come a time, you know, get into the next life, the church scaffolding is no longer needed. But also as you're working on different parts of the gospel, can the scaffolding change? Absolutely. Yeah, the scaffolding from time to time ends up being different. Okay? Now, but because the church is not this amorphous thing, a church is made up of people and the people are drawn from the places that we live. So surrounding the church is what? The culture. Okay? And the culture is this thing all, out, all around here uh, that from which is drawn the church and from the church is, is to administer and work with and frame and try and understand and teach the principles of the gospel. So, do, do, the, truths of the, do the truths of the gospel change? No. no. Does our interpretation of the truths of the gospel subject to grow? and be restored and with additional light and knowledge it so we'd say it changes we'd say yeah but the church the, the gospel doesn't change no gospel truths don't change what does change the cult well the cultural impact certainly has a being on how the members of the church look at the gospel and our understanding and our understanding and not only that, then we also believe, and President Nelson has been really clear about saying that on the restoration is ongoing, which means a new information could come to a leader of the church, and they're going to impact our understanding of the truths of the gospel. But the truths of the gospel don't change. But we're going to look at it different. But when we get, sometimes we get new information people start to be a little bit worried. It's like, well, wait, is the gospel changing? No, the gospel's been the same. But, but now with the church is going to come, how do we administer things? How do we take care of the people? What needs to be happening? Should we do two meetings or three? You know, should we, should we be part of Boy Scouts of America or not? Should we, yeah? Maybe a good example for those of us that are in the temple. Oh, has changed because I think the brethren were realizing that this generation needed to have it in their face that the temple ordinance is all about the Savior. So what do we see on the screen? And the words will never come away. Yes. Well, and provide more information at the front of it saying, this is all about Jesus. When we do this, we're actually looking at the Savior. You know, because sometimes with symbolism, we don't get the symbolism. Based on, based on, because for, for instance, in our church culture, how good have we been at symbolism? We don't do a lot of symbolism, just kind of more this is what it is. So we get to the temple and we're being teaching, taught by metaphor 
and symbolism and, and all that. Uh, and so even things like the flood, we'd look at the flood and say, was that a real thing or was that a symbolic cleansing? And the answer is, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> don't, but we get caught up in the literal weeds sometimes because uh, the church did go, especially in the early 1900s, the culture at the time was incredibly literalistic. Okay? Going, you know, like dear old Polly Pratt, you know, if women are going to go into the eternities and have eternal increase, well, now you're going to be like an eternal womb, right? <laughs> well, Polly Pratt is like, well, it's nine months here, so it's got to be nine months there. And, you know, and if it's, if it's the way we do it in mortality, this is the way we're going to do it there. And so... You know, it was just like this literalism that culturally shaped a lot of things in the church. Okay. All right. That said, let, let me, uh, me kind of hop from that uh, because it's going to make a difference when we start talking about the, the wars. Um, now, here's where, here's where this gets to be kind of fun, I think. Is that because of this, now what we get is that uh, we, we like our culture, our church culture, because of uh, when we, got, we start talking about sin, we're thinking about how do I know if I'm sinning or not? And how do I know if it was enough sin? And when have I got enough sin that keeps me out of the celestial kingdom versus sort of sin? And, you know, how, you know we, our culture was really bent on trying to figure out how much sin we've done. Okay, so because of that, our culture really, really, our church culture really, really likes certainty. <laughs> we really like to know for sure what's true and what's not true. Can I get up in testimony meeting and say, I believe that this church is true? Yeah, Alan? Can I just add? Kind of, you probably will, but <laughs> it hasn't stopped you before. This is, this is a little cynical, okay? What okay. okay. Yeah. But I think what you're saying is true only to the extent that those questions are answerable. Because many times, what is the answer that we get? Oh, that will be resolved in the eternity. Yeah. Hey, what about all these conflicts that are ethically and morally? Okay, but in, in our oh, it's in the I know, but but, it, but in our but in our culture, if we say we we're not going to know here, we're going to know there, we land that on a culture that wants to know what the truth. The truth. The truth. <laughs> now, you know, if a plane crashed tomorrow, what would be the next question? Like we should go get the re go get the survivors. No, who did it? How did it happen? What ha we want? I, I want to be able to. And and our kids, if we're asking them a question, they want from Google. Now we want we are we were, uh, we want answers. We want clarity. That's why I think when we get to sin and we're going, what's a sin and what's not? Well, I don't know. Was there a flood or was there not? I don't know. Ooh, I don't, we have to know. We got to, our culture wants certainty. So if I'm going to stand up in testimony meeting and say, I, I have a, a, I've had a spiritual conviction that this church uh, is the right place to be and that the, there is truth here, people would go, 
I don't like. I don't think I like that language. <laughs> what, what, what is it that people want to hear from the pulpit? In a, in a. Well, I know what they don't want to hear. When we first moved here to Dallas, we had an instructor in a high priest group that made half the quorum pretty upset. <laughs> that, that would be so unusual for high priest. Well, <laughs> Look, I'm not here to tell you to say your prayers and read the scripture. You've been told that if you do it or not, well, it won't make any difference. You can say, I'm here to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ has the answer to all the world. Oh, yes, yes. Pause for a minute. And then he'd say, and the Lord wants to know what you've done about it, like me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, and, and the answers, because I've got to know the answer. That's why I'm going to stand up in testimony meeting, you know, and I'm going to say what? I know that the church is true, the only true church upon the face of the earth, and I know with every fiber of my being, and you know, I, I gotta have divine certainty. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know? And if somebody says, Man, I've got doubts, <laughs> they go, No, 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 we gotta clear out those doubts, okay? Quickly. <laughs> so so part of what happens is is that we want yes or no answers, and my and, and we like because we like certainty, we like um, we like prayer formulas. For instance, how are you going to know that something, Sister Ailes? How are you going to know that something is right? You're going to pray about it. How are you going to know what's right? If you feel it. Okay, but how are you going to know what's right versus what's wrong? Come on, DNC nine. The burning in your bosom. Is the is the right answer? There's okay. A burning or what? Stupor. Right. Burning a stupor. <laughs> we love that formula, right? How am I going to know we should move to South Dakota? Mm-hmm. Did I get a burning or a stupor? Well, there was a story by Elder Holland where they went down the wrong road. And his son said, mm-hmm. How come I went down the wrong road? He said, Because now we know that was the wrong road. And the other one after, after we went down the wrong road. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that we should have had they been in tune. They should have been able. Should we go here? Burning or stupor? I'm getting a stupor. Bad road. We we just like the certainty of knowing that prayer formula, right? I'm not sure if I get stupors or evidence of long-term loss of short-term memory. <laughs> Sometimes we just have a stupid of thought. You know, it made sense. It should have been that. Yeah. Are we told that we're supposed to get up and? That's what they want us to do, is to get up and testify? Of what? Truly. Well, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, I, I've listened to Richard Bushman, uh, who has been a, a prominent scholar, and, and uh, he's now a patriarch, and he says when he gets up to testify, he says, I just want to be good. <laughs> I try to be good. If I'm following the gospel of Jesus Christ, I try and be a good person. Which I think is... He had a he had a, stu- a complete stupor of thought. <laughs> That's a slumber of thought. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. I like what one of our uh, one of our YSA people says when he got up to bear his testimony. He says, 
Jesus. Yeah, he did. You know, and and so, but but that's way outside the realm. Of, here, here's what I know for sure. I I know that Jesus loves me. Okay, that's a long way from trying to de- declare. However, here's the deal: is that I believe that the more you study, and then we're certainly going to see this as we go through the war chapters, there is less certainty out there than we know. And, and the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't always grant us the ability to know exactly one way or the other. We have to wrestle with not knowing. Now, so, so let me give you a quick, couple of quick examples. Isn't it interesting that when, according to the Genesis account, when God creates the world, he goes, hmm, there's, I'm going to create with light and dark. There are going to be these two kind of opposing things. And that's good. <laughs> and then there's land and water. Oh, and that's good. Sometimes it's land, sometimes it's water. In other words, he's saying automatically there's going to be, I'm not saying everything is one. It's like, you're going to have to wrestle with this a little bit. Okay, now, so, so what happens when Eve shows up? And we need to get the plan of salvation going. What, what is Eve presented with? A choice. Uh, she had to. She had to choose between two opposites, right? If I if I keep the one, then I'm going to be struggling with the other. And if I keep this one, then I'm disobeying that one. And, and we go, well, that seems kind of manipulative. No, she had to wrestle between two goods. But we want the solution. <laughs> But this, but the whole plan of salvation started with two contrasting. Got to choose between these two things, between two goods, and then make a decision, and recognize that by choosing this, we're not going to get this. By choosing to partake of the fruit, what did she give up? The garden. The garden. If she'd chosen to stay in the garden, she'd given up mortality. And so she was going to have to choose. And I think that's... Uh, so, so so often where we want certainty, isn't it interesting that we're going to be placed in situations where we have to choose between the good and the good? Yeah. I'm just curious. You said they're two goods, and I don't disagree with you, but we learned that Satan was tempting her. Eat this, you know? And to me, that's like, oh, you don't want to do what Satan says. So how is it two goods when Satan was a part of the good? See, here's, see, here's the fun part about what Satan did. Uh, again, as it listened in here, uh, Satan said, uh, if you partake of the fruit, what's going to happen? Your eyes are going to be open. Was that true? Sure. If you partake of the fruit, then this is the way God gained his knowledge. Was he right? Yeah. You know, in other words, everything that Satan <coughs> said was actually true. Everything. Now he's going to say, but you won't die. Did Satan want them to die? Yeah. No. He wanted to partake of the fruit and, in their sin. and live forever in their sins. And then, then he gets oh. to control them. Uh-huh. Everything he said was true. He just expected that there would be, this wasn't a one course meal. There was going to be a, you're going to eat. You're going to eat this fruit and then you're going to eat that fruit. I want you to eat both fruits. Then you're going to know the difference between good and evil, the difference between right and wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all true. 
it was where he was trying to manipulate where he would have control. Yeah? Oftentimes, we see the plan of salvation in a very two-dimensional, oh. linear path. Yes. And that is, you know, to follow the tree of life, we have to make all the perfect decisions that are right, right in our life. And that is the only way that we get things done and get to the celestial kingdom. Yeah. I have learned in my life through many difficult experiences that, that I, I reject that notion entirely. I think it's completely absurd. And the, the part of the plan of salvation that makes perfect sense to me is that we all have free agency. And that is what's missing here from the, the context of what our sister here is saying. Like, what happens is, in reality, is we have uh, choices that are presented to us. And just in the same way that Eve was presented with a choice that had... Um, consequences either way. Consequences right? that, that, that could appear both to be good, although one side of that was influenced by Satan. Sure, okay? sure. We are also in our lives presented with similar, similar, similar choices. And, and, the, and the, the culture, which, you know, from here to go back to your other graph, the culture of the church and of the world would sometimes make us think that certain choices yeah. are absolutely outside of the realm of that linear path within the plan of yeah. salvation. And that's, that's bogus. That's ridiculous. Well, but we, we, can make, we can make choices. We can make choices that are not necessarily a, totally along that linear path. And that does not mean that the, the core, I know what this is a long comment, but the core example I would give is, you know, if you have somebody, if you have somebody that, for example, is learning the gospel, they're an investigator, they're going to get baptized, and this person has experiences that are um, difficult to deal with, we send, obviously, and people that help this person um, fellowship them, the person that's helping them, their experiences that they have that might be relatable to this other person is what helps bring them in line to be able to have a perspective to say, yes, I'm going to get baptized into the gospel and accept the gospel. Because Christ. these people are like me. Because these people are like me. Yeah. And had that not been the case, this other person wouldn't have gotten baptized. That's a, like a super low-hanging fruit, easy example. But my point is is that it's not, a, it's not a pure black and white dichotomy that says no. if I make these, these what are considered otherwise be poor choices in my life, then that means I'm somehow not contributing to the planet, not going to get back to heaven. L let me give you a really good example of this, guys. Um, I've mentioned this in a couple of places. I, I, I listened to a... Uh, a return mission president uh, by the name of Jeff Strong, and he just returned from the Bentonville, Arkansas mission. Um, and he was, he was tasked by uh, Elder Ballard to, to uh, try some things in their mission uh, that, that would take it away from proselyting in the traditional sense and more towards the service side of things which he just kind of embraced and went whole hog with. <laughs> whole hog, Arkansas, get it? Oh, anyway. <laughs> um, and, just, and so he implemented all these massive changes to where they, the vast majority of the work these, these missionaries were doing was all service-based and not proselyting-based. Okay? And a couple of things came out of that. Number one is that he found that 
people in the community were saying, we love what you're doing, we just can't believe it's the Mormons that are doing it. <laughs> Usually it's the Salvation Army or somebody else is doing this stuff that you guys are manning the soup kitchens and you were doing all these things. We can't because the Mormons are usually the ones knocking on our doors trying to proselyte us and you guys are doing all the service stuff, which was really kind of cool, but it was a shift in what they expected. Okay. Number two, one of the things that he found was that when he walked in, it's one of those questions that uh, leaders in the church are having all over the place, is what do we do with all of these kids that have mental illness, mental challenges, anxiety, you know, kids on the spectrum, special needs things. And he said, when I became mission president, we had 40 missionaries that we were tracking daily. 40 missionaries with some kind of mental struggle. He says, when we left, we had two. Because they were actually implementing the gospel of Christ, and it was natural to them to go love and serve and be involved. Now, out of that, he said, so here's what he said. He says, I'm just a beggar like everybody else, and I'm a beggar that found some crusts of bread, and I want to share my crusts of bread. (laughs) And he shared five crusts of bread uh, with us that I think that I just wanted to, again, set up as a way before we look into the war chapters because I, th- I thought they were pretty powerful. And, and some of them are challenging and certainly challenging for me. Okay? Number one. Because he says, I'm going to give you five things and then I'm going to give you the distortion that the culture has made off of, the, off of these principles. Okay? Are, are, does that make sense? Okay. Here we go. He says, first of all, one of those questions we have to wrestle with, is the church an exclusive club membership or a discipleship to the world? In other words, are we supposed to spend all of our time just working inside the club versus how much time are we supposed to be spending with people out there, not in a proselyting sense, but in a discipleship sense? Then he said, here's the the challenge ended up being uh, the the distortion that he thinks the the culture gets hung up on is that your membership in the church alone makes you a good person. Ouch. (laughs) I'm serving. I'm involved in the church and everything. And that all by itself, without ever knowing my neighbors, without doing anything else, makes me a good person. I'm good at church. But I'm, I'm, I'm really nasty to the cashier at Kroger's, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we, we, with the time, as when we baptize, we have very clear with, with who are we doing the covenant. But with the time, it, this is that, like, we start pleasing people around us that doesn't have to do anything with. Jesus Christ's doctrine and the covenants that we have made with him and we just like oh I need to get in the next year. That's right. I'm getting brownie points. Uh I want to get celestial points by doing I I don't want to be here. I'm hating being here but man some angel better be keeping track for me. (laughs) Because man this is sacrifice on my part. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like this person but and I have to admit that I have gone into, I, I've helped people move sometimes where it's like, well, they obviously didn't prepare for us or they're not being very grateful. 
but uh, I'll be here and somebody better, you know, I'm going to make sure the bishop knows I was here. Come on, I was, you know. All right, so that's the distortion, okay? That's number one. There's four more. Do we focus on our inward spirituality or are we turning outward to serve? Uh, that didn't show up, did it? Hello? How come that's not... Crank it off. Crank it back on. Okay. Do we focus on our inward spirituality or are we turning outward to serve others? Now, again, is there, do we need to focus on our inside spirituality? Absolutely. Do we need to be serving others? Yes. But what we're having to balance is how much are we doing of each, knowing that I've got my scripture time or I've got to help somebody move. If I'm helping somebody move, I'm not, got, not getting as much scripture time. If I'm doing enough scripture time, I'm not, I may not have the time. So we're having to make choices. That's why we want the certainty. How much do I need to do of one, recognizing that by doing one, I'm going to probably have a consequence of the other. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's, here's the distortion that he came up with. You can find healing, meaning, and peace by focusing only on yourself, as long as it's a spiritual or religious or church thing. Ouch. That's the distortion. That we'd say, all right, if I just focus on myself, that's okay. Now, last time I checked, one of the, one of the consequences that came in the Middle Ages uh, and focusing on sin that most churches these days go by is what does it take to what does it take to make it to heaven? If if you're if you're a good evangelical, what does it make to what do you gotta do to make it to heaven? You gotta be saved, right? And confess Christ. And then I make it to heaven. Me. Now when and and what what was restored and the restoration is, does anybody make it to heaven by themselves? No. When we talk about exaltation, we're talking about exaltation as couples, families, communities, the city of Enoch, sometimes whole cities. In other words, nobody is exalted by their own self. But sometimes in our own spirituality, we're like, I'm going to, I'm going to save myself and all my dead, <laughs> you know, from the hymn. Okay? We don't save ourselves on ourselves, and it's not, not about being saved by ourselves. It's about being exalted in bringing our families, bringing people that we love with us. And that means that we've all become more like our heavenly parents, not just working on, I'm sure wonderful, and the rest of the world's kind of going to hell. Sorry. <laughs> but dang, I'm good. <laughs> Okay, this is the one that I always struggle with too with, with those that are really kind of working on their own spirituality stuff out in the woods and stuff like that there is a place for meditation and spirituality there really is we have to spend time on our own growth 
But those that are going to do simply meditation and spirituality are never getting a chance to help widows and orphans unless they start doing that. And sometimes that spirituality leans towards just, I'm going to take care of myself. Does that make sense? So part of what he was trying to teach the missionaries is, you know, spend some time on your own spirituality and then get out. Go do something. All right. This one, this is kind of an ouchie. Our cherished traditions versus having eyes to see the needs right in front of you. Man, we like our traditions. Anything wrong with traditions? No, we like traditions. They, they teach us stuff. That, you know, so much of Catholicism is about traditions. Certainly, Judaism is all about traditions and what we learn from traditions. But if, it, if we simply stay on that tradition and we're not willing to change anything we're doing because that's not the way that we used to do it, then, then we're going to be stuck. So his distortion was that um, why is that not moving? Hmm. This is going to drive me a little bit crazy. Uh-huh. It keeps switching off. Oh, you know what it is? It's the... Uh, It's because we're trying to use the internet in the building. And you know, Leona is a little bit fickle. Okay. He says that the distortion is, is that our traditions are the main lamp that lights our way. And so we're sometimes we're so stuck in our traditions that we can't move forward. Okay. Four. Here's another ouchie. Our, our rites, sacrament, temple, baptisms are important to us and should be. Okay? There are things that we learn from that. Versus pure religion undefiled. And so, let me get your... your his, his thought was the pinnacle of our religious experience on earth is the rites, rituals, and places of worship. The most important spiritual thing that ever happens to us is only going to happen in a church building. <clears throat> let, that, let, let that one land for just a minute. That, one, that was one that kind of caught me. Because we've always said, well, the most important thing that ever happened, you know, it's in the temple or it's in the... Can I tell you probably the most spiritual experience I've ever had in my life? It was sitting at my mom's dead, bedside as she as she died. That moment when somebody's crossing over the veil was not in a temple. It wasn't in a church building. It was at the side of somebody who was passing away. Right closely behind that, what, probably very very close to that, was uh, was uh, after a friend of mine had died and we dressed his body before his funeral three of us pulled off the side we said a prayer and then we went about the process of dressing him to, for, the, for the casket that was an incredible just touches me even now 
That didn't happen in a church building. That happened in a mortuary. <laughs> but we tend to want to say that our most spiritual experiences are in... Not to say that we don't have incredible spiritual experiences in temples and meetings. We do. But are we open to saying the spiritual experience that I might have sitting with a young mother or something like that might be as powerful as anything I might experience in a building? Okay? Is that okay? Okay. That one that one surprised me. Oh crap. Alright, I'm gonna learn my lesson here and have to hook up. I'm gonna make sure next time that I'm hooked up with a cable. And you know, don't you? Anytime you're going to rely on Leahona for something, you go, okay, I'm going to get let down here. I know. Uh huh. Can I just say yeah. what we were just talking about? We need both. Yes, we do need both. We need both. Absolutely. But if we just. <laughs> If we're with one way or the other, that's right. So for all of these, we're having to say it's it's about balance. It's making sure that we have both here, but we tend to kind of be lopsided one way or the other. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can think of a couple examples with this. One is this one sister that was inactive uh, called me. I was out of state and needed help. And so I called the Relief Society president she was a member I had saying, what can, I can't help her right now. What can we do? Well, you'll have to arrange something because I'm on my way to a meeting. Yeah. You know? Well, yes. And, and so I was trying, I was at the airport trying to leave. They were changing gates. And so I was on the phone and changing gates and trying to do all this so that she could go to her meeting. And I'm thinking, is there something I'm missing? And, and, meet, and meetings can often be important in terms of what we're trying to do. But that's why I say, I think we get, and I think part of what he's trying to get at is we get lopsided. We just say, it's always going to be more important. Sometimes the most important thing is we miss a meeting because there's a need right in front of us that we're trying to take care of. Well, um, President Monson tells the story about that giving, being in a... Uh, it was in a state conference, wasn't it? Yeah. Impression that he needed to go visit a person, and he didn't because he was in state conference. And then I think that he found out that the person passed away while he was sitting. Yeah. And he, you know, basically said that he was able to do that again. He would, if he did see impression, that he needs to happen at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the the final piece to this is: is heaven a future sanctuary or a place for immediate inclusion? In the early days of the church, you guys study New Testament. Uh, I say you guys because I end up being in other, trying to do other things in, in the war. So I'm not getting a chance to sit in gospel doctrine and enjoy New Testament. But Paul, all the way through the New Testament, if you took, if you look at a small ch- uh, uh, church, a house church in Corinth or Athens or Thessalonica or Ephesus or wherever Paul was preaching, they weren't trying to get to heaven. They really, really weren't. What they were trying to do was create heaven on earth because they took Jesus at his word when he says, Thy kingdom come. They expected heaven would come to them. 
So our job is not to try and get us to heaven. Our job is to create heaven right where we are. And that meant taking care of one another. That meant taking care of their neighbors. Uh, we, have, we have reports like out of Thessalonica, how good the house churches were in taking care of non-Christ believers around them. They had a reputation for just doing good stuff. And they figured that heaven was coming to them. They weren't trying to wait for a time when they would go to heaven. Kind of cool, right? Uh, What would happen, think about the shift if we said, we're not trying to get to the celestial kingdom. That'll take care of itself and the celestial kingdom will make it to us. We're just trying to, in our ward, in our homes, whatever, we're just trying to create heaven right now. Big difference. Uh, Huh? Yeah, you're clicking yourself out here. Okay. And, and what, he, what he's going to go on to say is um, that do we see our distortion is that heaven is, a, heaven is really a haven exclusively for the winners. Only the really, really good people get to go to heaven. Everybody else is, there's a nice place prepared for you. It just isn't where the really good people go. It's a good place. Yeah. That makes Zion here more possible. Yeah. Feels like it's impossible in the world that we live in sometimes from my perspective but if we're doing good then it's here then yeah. it's Zion right now yeah rather than saying well this is just a crappy world right. and the world is going to heck right. and so we're just going to kind of pull in towards each other mm-hmm. and then we'll just wait till we get there rather than what we have as a as a organization as a church that is serving and can bring $200,000 worth of food to a thing like that, we have a possibility for a lot of good to teach the world about families, to teach the, the world about uh, the importance of knowing our ancestors. We, we've got good stuff. And if we just keep it inside our buildings, nobody gets the benefit. And not only that, if we're out there, then they have good things to teach us. So. It seems like the city of Enoch in the scriptures was like absolutely perfect and that's why it was taken up. Maybe it was Zion, like we can create here and it doesn't have to be perfection. Maybe it can be just beautiful Yeah. within the corruption. Isn't that amazing? And maybe we can help the corruption not be quite so corrupt right. if we are good people doing good things. Right. And that's what they found in this mission, is that if their missionaries were good people doing good things, that everything else took care of itself. Now, the funny part about it is, is that he said, the one pushback I got was from church leaders who said, this isn't really missionary work. (laughs) Because it's not missionary work unless you're racking up baptisms. And they say, no, this is the essence of who the church is. We should be good people doing good things. Uh, and so the, what I'm saying is the traditions, if we're going to change some of this, it, it's going to, some of us are going to be taken there kicking and screaming on our way to say, that's just not how we used to do that stuff. No, it really isn't. So anyway, that, that's a long lead up here. So questions before we hop in to finally get to Book of Mormon we're trying to get to? Comments? I just appreciate what you've said. It just opens my eyes to realizing where my daughter is serving. But she doesn't have baptisms, but she serves every day, all the time. And it is 
that is what it is. And it's impactful. And if they're just saying, it, so so rather than judge it by how many lessons are taught and how many, which, which he quit doing, this mission president said, I just want you to be out being good people, doing good things. Yeah, I love And, the, and there's no greater it's calling. structure is how it's changing. And, yeah. And it's beautiful. It just feels right, doesn't it? It does. It's just, it's just like... I listen to her every week and all the things that she's doing and all she does is work and service and just helping people and it's Yeah. Isn't that cool? I mean, she's in Lithuania and it's just small. There's only like two sisters and an elder and I mean just teeny. And it's just I just kept thinking, Well, she's not, you know, but you just totally just Made it open up. Yeah, because this is this is the work that we're engaged in is to be yeah. out there doing good, I think, yeah. uh, and recognizing that that's what the Savior would have us do is to be good people, right. helping and recognizing the people right in front of us and what those needs are. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so let me give you an example. Uh, Brent, you. Yeah. Well, I was surprised that we had no former president who had been a missionary in Russia. At the point in time when the government outlawed proselyte, and he said the initial reaction is panic for what are we going to do? And we said, well, if we can't go proselyte, why don't you just go down to the fitness center and work out for a while? And find other things like that to keep busy. Yeah, because it's about staying busy, right? And, and, and he said they did. And what they found out is their baptism reaction went up after they were ordered by the government to put proselyte because they went out and met people. Just doing things that you would do if you weren't Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's going to take a shift, a big cultural shift on our part to be able to say, how about as members we just be good people and do what we're supposed to be called to do because God so loved the church. No, God so loved the world. We have a responsibility out there. So, so let, let me give you an example. I think of of. Uh, you wonder about uh, we look at the war chapters in the in the Book of Mormon, and all of the horribleness that came because of decisions that made, and how many people die in wars all the time uh, because of the decisions of a handful of people. Um, so we get in, we get into Alma forty three, uh, and he's going to say now uh, verse three. I'm going to return to an account of the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites. Uh, and, and again, we know the story. The Amalekites, former members, were more wicked. Uh, and uh, Zarahemna stirring up the hatred of the, the Lamanites towards the Nephites. Uh, and he wants to gain power by bringing them into bondage. Now, here's... here's Here's what he's saying that the Nephites were involved in. Now, the design of the Nephites was to support the lands, their houses, their wives, their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies. Also, they might preserve their rights and privileges and their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. Got it. Now, he's also going to tell you there was a... Remember, there is an antecedent to this. There's another event that has brought this war. And, so, and we have to see what it is. Uh, and it's in verse 11. This is really the cause, the, the thing that got the whole war started. 11. 
They also knew the extreme hatred of the Lamanites towards their brethren who were who? The people of anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Okay, now, just the backstory on them. They, they were the people that had joined the church. And what had happened after they joined the church when they were still at home? The, their brethren, the other, the non-converted Lamanites, attack them, and what do they do? Nothing. They just fall down, and they are they're being attacked, and they're being killed. And it says like a thousand of them died. Um, got it? Cool. A, a, a thousand of them die. And, and then there's actually a couple more slaughters before Ammon goes, oh, I can't handle this anymore. <laughs> this is all the guys I baptized. No way. So they moved them up into the land of Jershon. And they put them in the land of Jershon so that uh, the, it was set up so the Nephites could swing around and protect them should they get attacked. Because what, what did they know about these anti-Nephi-Lehi's? They won't fight. They're not going to fight. They will suffer death in the most aggravating manner. Yeah, I, right? We're just going to, we're going to die because we're already happy about where we, we are. We don't want to like fight back because the people attacking us aren't ready for Christ anyway. So we don't want, so we'll just let them kill us. You know, as I have read that, I have always thought they were so grateful to know the truth. Yeah, they were. Sacrifice thing, and and look at what that example did. I mean, what the rippling effect of that example was years and years in people people's labor. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I, I've said about these guys before, again, with the with the Nephites, how did they motivate the Nephites to be good? <laughs> Out of fear, the Nephite prophets were really harsh. Keep the commandments, or you're going to hell. The Old Testament was keep the commandments or you're going to hell. And, and, and you're going to go to hell because we're going to stone you. We're going to kill you right here if you don't believe. That's pretty harsh. If the death sentence is there every time you don't keep one of the Ten Commandments, oof, okay, that's harsh. Well, guess what? Nephites had the same thing. If you're not going to support us, you're dead. Is a very harsh standard. Now, for the anti-Nephi-Lehites, did they, did they join the church out of fear? No, they joined out of love. And their love and, and gratitude. And did they ever fall away? No. Because it wasn't about fear. It was about loving and loving everybody around them. And they stayed true, not necessarily to a church, they stayed true to Christ because I'm going to love and I'm going to treat people the way they need to be treated. Okay? So it's about love. Okay? But it forced something on the Nephites. That's, that's the challenge here, right? 11. They knew of the extreme hatred of the Nephites towards their brethren, who were the people of anti Nephi, who called the people of Ammon, that they would not take up arms. They had entered into a covenant, they would not break it. Therefore, if they should fall into the hands of the Lamanites, they'd be destroyed. And the Nephites would not suffer that they should be destroyed. It's like the anti-Nephi-Lehi said, okay, we're fine. <laughs> and it was the Nephites who said, 
no, we don't want to watch that. We love you guys too much. We're going to protect you. But what are we going to... And, and so the people of Ammon did give unto the Nephites, verse 13, a large portion of their substance to support their armies. And thus the Nephites were compelled, interesting word, Nephites were compelled alone to withstand against the Lamanites who were compound of all of these guys. So, so in essence, what are the Nephites going to have to do? Fight and kill and die to protect these guys who won't fight. Now, I don't know. Is that a, is that a fairness thing? I mean, the way that we look at the world these days is that we, we could look at it and go, wow, that's really amazing. Or we could go, depending on which way you want to look at it, it's like, well, that's just not fair. Just because they won't fight, you know. I don't know if you call them necessarily like conscientious objectors or something like that, but they had their reasons why they wouldn't fight, and we hold them up. Was that the wrong thing for the Nephites to do, to be willing to fight and kill and die for these guys that wouldn't fight? Kevin, the only thing that would make the difference for the Nephites would be their great compassion and love for these people. So now they would be having the same love in their hearts. For these people. reason, that would be the only way that it would make it, if we use the word right. Yeah. So you think they're motivated by a sense of love for, for, for the anti-Nephi-Lehi's? I wish that that was the case. I you, you, you're not sure? Well, I would say that just like in our world today, there are some that do heroic things be for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. And I would like to think that some of those Nephites have that love in their hearts because what if I converted Wendy the Lamanite? It's going to absolutely break my heart. I'm going to do anything to save her. Right. So, and that, that may mean having to inflict life. death. You might have to kill somebody to protect her. Because she won't fight herself. Because I love her. Right. So there might have been some of that, but I doubt it was all of it. Right. Let's hope there was. So you think that people were maybe fighting for different reasons? Yes. Oh, I like that. I like that. Maybe some people were willing to fight because they just hated Lamanites. <laughs> I'm going to join the army because I, I don't like Lamanites anyway. That's the world today. Or I'm really good with the sword and I want to try this out. <laughs> but you're right. I, I, I assume that there was a variety, especially those that like Ammon. I mean, Ammon are like, if I got to go fight to protect these guys, I'm going to go do that because I love them. I don't want to see them killed. But again, we're having to make decisions, aren't we? And, and nobody gets to look at our motives except us, but we're just having to say, in this case, um, what we're going to get. In fact, I'm going to go, I'm going to hop over here. Because Moroni, Captain Moroni is going to be put up as the, as kind of the exemplar around this. And now, as Moroni knew, knew the intention of the Lamanites, it was their intention to destroy their brethren. <laughs> so, so, by the way, let, let me ask, why would the, the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's people of Ammon left? We're just gone. We're leaving. Why would the Lamanites be so stirred up in anger towards guys that just left? We're gone. We're not in your midst anymore. What's the deal? Why would Lamanites want to kill these guys? 
They feel betrayed. A sense of betrayal. Why, why betrayal, Sol? Because they were part of them, and now that they are not, it is like, what is wrong with us? That you don't want to be... You think you saw, they saw the people of Ammon like thumb in their nose saying, maybe we're better than you? Mm-hmm. Or, 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 or just the Lamanites thought, um, oh, now you are going with people that has been rotting our face all our lives that it's better than us. They, oh, so you're lining with the people they think they're better than us. And they were robbers and thieves because they stole our right to rule. Yeah. At least for me when I look at that, there is that temporal thing, all the political stuff. But at the same time, those were Lamanites who had this religious belief and tradition from their fathers. Uh-huh. Here are a whole group of Lamanites who are supposed to theoretically have those same feelings, but didn't. They became converted to principles of the gospel. Right. And in fact, what was what was the term? Why did they choose the term anti Nephi Lehi? We here's a problem. Anti now means the opposite. Attack. Back then it meant like. We are going to be like Nephi-Lehi. That really makes a big difference, right? Yeah. We'll thank Hugh Nibley for putting that one together. Okay. They are going to be like Nephi and Lehi, which means what traditions are we want are we following now? It's right? So part of it, this is one of those times when these Lamanites couldn't get out of their traditional way. And because what has remember with the initially with uh, when the anti Nephi Lehi's started to join the church, the first thing they had to do was quit believing the traditions of their fathers. They had to change traditions, and that becomes very offensive then to those people still hanging on to the traditions. Okay. I have a yes. Okay. Because yes. Of their freedoms, their right. love of God, their family, and their way of life, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's would have never had the opportunity to learn about God if they didn't have that that freedom to do it. That freedom from the Nephites. So should they have fought? Yes. Should they have? Should, should the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have fought originally? Sure. But to protect their kids, protect their to protect the freedom of the country. Ah. So there's a there's an argument for fighting. Yes. But I do understand why they chose why they would chose well, they, they would choose specifically not to. But I see why their kids chose uh. to fight because those freedoms had freed them. Okay. Yeah, see that? Okay, I just looked up something. I thought about the term antebellum. Uh-huh. Okay, which we have probably all heard that. After after the war. Anti-Anti or Anti-Nephi-Lehi, 
it would be and, and put this mm. with it, then it would be Go back to the traditions. Before the war started. Oh, I like that too. I like that. Now, look at, so, so I, I like that. And so here's, here's the struggle. Uh, now, Moroni knows what their intentions are. They want to destroy, they want to subject them. Now, Mormon wants us to know that his only desire, it says, is to preserve their lands, their liberty, their church. And therefore, and, and it's almost like he's having to excuse this. That why would he have to excuse, and he thought it no sin, that he should defend them by stratagem? Why would he, why would he need a disclaimer? By the way, he didn't think this was a sin. Now, you might think it's a sin, but he didn't think it was a sin. Well, I know, but apparently who might think it was a sin to use stratagem? And by the way, what was his stratagem? Spies. His stratagem is to find out from Alma where they're going. <laughs> See, so it was a righteous cause. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, I know where we're going, so here, here it is. 23. Uh, sent people to Alma desiring that he should inquire of the Lord where the armies of Nephites should go to defend themselves against the Lamanites. The word defend is interesting. Uh, and it came to pass that the word of the Lord came unto Alma. Now, so he's going to get, so he's, his stratagem is, I got it from the prophet. <laughs> okay? But he's still got to defend it. He didn't think it was a sin. Uh, okay. Now, Here's the, here's the last piece, and, and, and I'm going to probably kind of finish with this because I want to talk next week more about the title of liberty and, and all of that. But I thought this was interesting. And this is probably what I spent most of the week trying to figure out. And guys, I still don't have an answer to this one. I don't. He says uh, in, in verse 46... And they were doing what they felt was their duty, which they owed to their God, as we understand it. For the Lord had said unto them and also their fathers, that insomuch you are not guilty of the first offense or the second, you shall not suffer yourselves to be slain at the hands of the enemy. And the Lord has said, you shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Seems like that would be a, a direction also to the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. <laughs> Well, but they have made a covenant. Well, they have. To do something different. Right? right? They made a covenant with God. We used to slay Nephites. So one of the reasons we're not doing it is that we don't want to shed any more blood. In fact, we'll bury our swords rather than have that happen. Right? Now, but these two phrases, inasmuch as you're not guilty of the first offense, neither the second, you shall not suffer your hands to be slain by the hands of your enemies. Guys, I can't find that one. Until I look at the Doctrine and Covenants, like section 83, I think. What was it? You not suffer yourself, uh, uh, in so much as not guilty of the first offense or second. And then this one, again, the Lord has said, you shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. I can't find that one either. And, I, and I'm looking through the Book of Mormon all over the place. I'm st I still haven't found this one. They're quoting from something. And I don't know where it is. 
And, and in some cases, it doesn't apply. It didn't apply to the anti-Nephi-Lehites, but it does, apply, it does apply to them. At least they believed it applied to them. So I just thought, oh, that's fascinating. They're operating off of something. Now, the only thing I can find is what we're going to talk about next week is when we get to um, the uh, title of liberty and that we're supposed to, we're not going to perish, so we're going to hang in here just like we're supposed to, but it's not there. This is, this is something that I can't find in the scriptures. But they, this is what they were operating off of. We're supposed to do it to bloodshed. Now, during the week, if you want to see if you can find it, you know, rot the rock. <laughs> hey, I will defend what I said about spies. Yes? <laughs> According to the Book of Mormon, well, Zerum, Amner, Manti, and Limber, yeah. five spies who lived in the first century B.C. Yes. And under the direction of Alma, were sent to spy on the camp of the Amosites. That's right. During the war between the Nephites and them. By the way, where do you think he got that idea? Probably from Joshua. Remember how Joshua sends spies into, before they cross the river? Although in that case, the spies come back and go, oh, we got no chance. <laughs> oh my gosh, you got to see how big they are. You got to see how strong, uh, no. <laughs> Joshua's not having any of that either. But yeah. Um, I was reading through the class and something that um, it got my attention. It looks like a human beings. We want that in the narrative or any story, it's always bad and good. Yes, we do. We do. And Especially in our culture, we want to be able to make it... Okay? Yeah. So... Um, Thank you. You're getting right where I wanted to go. So, what uh, is, um, if we are all made at the image of Heavenly Father, Right. even that we make terrible choices, aren't we still his children and have some good at us? And, and you're saying this is a mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 I object. <laughs> so I, I don't really... And you know that I'm very black and white, so uh, I don't really see why we need to look for the bat so much. Yeah, but we do, don't we? Yeah. But because then, then if we look for the bad, then we can proclaim ourselves good. Yeah. If I know what the bad stuff is, then I feel better about what I'm doing. But we do. We want that. We want to make things a black and white. And all I'm trying to say, guys, is that even as we're looking at the Book of Mormon, we're looking at fallible prophets. And, and, and I'll just finish with this. I think there's... A, you ever had the question, when you, when you open the Book of Mormon and you first read it, one of the first little things that hits us in the Book of Mormon is the whole story of Nephi killing Laban. He's going to chop off his head while he's drunk. <laughs> but it's okay because God told him to do it. <laughs> you know. And I think in these days, I think we're a little uncomfortable with a, what did you do? Well, I chopped off his head. <laughs> Why did you do that? God told me to do it. <laughs> 
Yes, right? We're not really excited about, so we look at it and go, isn't there a possible, wasn't there other ways that Nephi could have got the plates? Maybe, you know, he ties him up in the corner, uh, you know, and, <laughs> you know, he's drunk already. Maybe we're done before he ever wakes up. You know, we just would like, I think it, I think it's a, if you don't feel a little bit of uncomfortableness around the idea that Nephi made a decision to do that, he felt like that's what he needed to do. But it's okay for us to look at it and go, was there other options? But that was a choice that Nephi made. Rather than going, oh, okay, well, it's always better to kill off one guy than a whole nation suffering unbelief. That's okay. What if we all think, well, it's better that I kill this guy rather than... Maybe I'll steal a loaf of bread, you know, and then I'll end up in prison forever. Les Mis. <laughs> I think but that, I'm feeding my family. I think that one of the things, like how Sola that was eliciting, you know, this, she was alluding to the fact that you've got good versus evil, right? All the time. And that's what the, the culture... Th- that we struggle with, yes. I think in the same way, what we do is that same culture also forces us to say, in terms of anybody who's a leader, they are on the side of good, so they only Every, they, they only do good things, good right? Choices. Yes. There's no way yes. That, there's no way that Le, that Nephi could have made a mistake there or done it or done it differently because whatever he did was the authoritative, decisive conclusion. Yes. Yes. God told me to do it, so I did it, and that's just the end of it, right? Right. There's no. There's no. Um, there's no. There's no like. Um, <clears throat> there's no di- real di- like. Nephi really wasn't like a partaker of the plan of salvation in having his own natural choices. He was just—he's just like a robot, just doing whatever. I'll just follow whatever the spirit tells me to do, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Rather than his own choices and beliefs enter into some of the decisions that he makes. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I just want to say they've already established that that he was a scumbag and he deserved. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, right, yeah. I was going to say, going back to the distortions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Share rather strong. Mortality, us mortal people, we want to be able to define in black and white what's right, what's wrong. What's wrong what's yes. Right. And when you listen to the Spirit, you can't define it that way. No, you can't. And again, sometimes what you're going to be led to do, you're going to feel that maybe you need to skip a meeting. <laughs> Because the mo- most important thing I could be doing is, is this over here. I, I, and I, I think that's kind of where I'm trying to go, is that we want to define, uh, and, and I'll finish with this. I was realizing as I was trying to explain to somebody the other day that we sustain leaders. You know, what does it mean to sustain? Support, support hold them up, okay? As parents, do you support your kids? Yeah, yes. Okay, but Alan, do you support your kids? Incontrovertibly, no. <laughs> <laughs> On something, you're holding them up even when they do stupids, right? Yes. And nobody knows the stupids your kids have done more than you do. Correct. But we still support them. Yeah. Guys, that's why we support leaders. <laughs> We, we have leadership in the church and we say we're going to be supportive of them. That doesn't mean we're going to turn a blind eye. It means our job is being supported. My job as a counselor to a bishop is to support my bishop, but to be able to help him in his good decisions and help him when, when I, with decisions I disagree with. My job is not to just turn a blind eye to everything he does. 
He's given counselors to go. To counsel. Bishop, I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, I know you were thinking about this person, but. Uh, and then if that's the decision you're going to go, I'm going to try and make sure as best we can. I think that's what we support one another. And I think that's p- part of what we're trying to do here. So anyway, <sighs> good discussion, huh? Good. I I just hope that as we take a look at this, I think the gospel is full of decision making. And I think it means that sometimes we have to wrestle with, do I eat the fruit or not? (laughs) What do I do here? And and each one will have consequences, but I'm going to move forward as best I can. And I think it's our job to support people trying to make those decisions and love them even if they make decisions that we may disagree with, but then help them as best we can otherwise. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, Father, we are grateful for this spiritual discussion. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, Or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming. And we'll see you for another Monday morning class.